Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. The tricks are irrelevant. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with magician and author Nate Staniforth. Nate is a magician, writer, speaker, and star of the Discovery Channel's hit series Breaking Magic. In 2018, Bloomsbury Publishing released Nate's memoir, Here is Real Magic, which I highly recommend. It is such a great read. For over a decade, Nate has toured the U.S. as one of the busiest working magicians in the nation. As a speaker, Nate has lectured about his work at Oxford University and spoken about wonder, creativity, and curiosity for groups and organizations including Google, TEDx, and the Mayo Clinic. He lives in Iowa City. We discuss Nate's journey into magic and his search for wonder. We dig into how he approaches his craft and his quest for continuous improvement. Nate shares the tension that a performer feels to share their work with the world and the desire to protect their work from the world. I appreciated Nate's thoughtfulness and insight as we dug into these topics. And his advice to learn at least one really great magic trick as a way to better connect with others. In our conversation, we peek into Nate's process and approach with inventing new tricks and or, as he describes, solving an impossible problem, and his approach to performing a new show and why ideas are so important in the process. It was an honor having Nate join me on the show. I thank him for sharing his time and insights. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Nate, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Nate Staniforth. I'm a magician. Uh, I live here in Iowa City. You know, before the pandemic, I would go out on tour a couple of times a year and do my show, you know, in clubs and small theaters around the country. Uh, and and now, like all of us, I'm doing something different. But it's okay, you know. I think so many years. It's funny. So many years, I would wish for a year where I could just stay home and not go on tour. And I didn't expect it like this. But um, uh, yeah, as it comes, I guess. Thanks. I just recently, I just had a friend. uh, They posted something on Facebook to the extent where they thought if they only had some dedicated time at home, they'd really get their home cleaned and organized. (laughs) Turns out that's not the reason. (laughs) But we're we're all adjusting in different ways. Uh, Nate, you, you've, uh, in, in addition to being a music, uh, magician, also a, a writer, uh, uh, you know, here is real magic. Yeah. I want to dig into that. You're also a TV host. And so a few different things that I want to dig into, but sure. on the magic front, if you don't mind, can you tell me, how did that journey start? What, what grabbed you and pushed you in that direction? You know, I think even before I knew there were such things as magic tricks, I loved the experience of, of wonder and, and of feeling amazed by, by whatever, you know. Um, I remember when I was really young, one of, the, one of the formative events in my life was when my, my parents took my brother and sister and I in the middle of the night out to see a meteor shower. And it just, you know, I'd never seen the Milky Way before. I had never, 
if even just leaving the house at you know after bedtime felt like an adventure and then at the end of it here's this here's this sky filled with falling stars and you know it 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 i still haven't gotten over it i still think about that all the time and um, you know it's easy to lose sight of the way that feels but i I've spent a lot of time just in my work as a magician, but also just as a person trying to figure out ways to, to get back to that and, and, and remember it. Thanks. I know uh, some themes that, uh, especially in, in your book and some of, as I was doing my research to uh, have you on here and you had mentioned wonder or a sense of awe. Do you know when you were able to really articulate that? Like you said, going out as a kid, you have yeah. that experience, but it is, it, it's hard to, I think for, for a child to really articulate, you know, it's special, but you know, if you were to operationalize it, it would be hard to define. So I think, I think that's true, but, but let me just suggest that, that a young magician is confronted with the, um, the absence of that every time, you know, like I, I remember being really struck by the way adults would respond to magic because one moment, they were the way they always were and then the magic would happen and they would they would people do the most the most unusual you know they just behave very strangely when they see something they can't explain and i'd see the you know my parents or friends of my parents or neighbors or teachers would just sort of jump up and down and run around and start shouting like that that was a real mystery to me that was more amazing than the magic and so i think it it forced me to look really carefully at this idea of of wonder, but also its absence. You know, what is it that that you lose um, when you become an adult, and why is it that a magic trick can can sort of rewire your brain for a moment and, and bring that back? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just uh, putting my cards on the table, so to speak. I I think of myself as a little bit of a magic nerd, not practicing, but I've I've always been in love with magic, and I think I was six years old and. And as a form of daycare, my mom sent me to uh, magic camp. Uh, it was just, it was a day camp that was, you would, you would practice magic tricks uh, and then also do trampoline. I think the trampoline was to, to work, yep, <laughs> work the magic energy and out trampoline with, together yeah. at last. Right? <laughs> you, know, it was, you know, Matt, you should, you should learn if you're interested, you should yeah. learn one really great piece of magic because uh, I, I swear you, you will see everyone in your life in a different way once you are able to sort of share that experience with them. Um, I don't know. I, I, if I'm an evangelist for anything, it's, it's that um, one of the most special things people can do together is, is share that experience of wonder, whether it's on a mountaintop or in the sunrise or you know, just a long walk together like that. So, so often we're performing for each other. So often we're having conversations that we've had before and telling stories that we've told before and saying things where, you know, so much of, uh, I just, I'm, I'm, whenever I think about it, I'm astonished at how often we are, um, rather than actually communicating, trying to put off an image or, or, you know, an energy or just, we, we show the world how we want the world to think of us. And I, one of the things I love about the experience of, you know, call it whatever you want, wonder, astonishment, magic, is it, it makes that fall away. For a moment, your brain is just seared by this moment of, of um, you know, whatever it is that I'm talking about when I talk about magic. And, and it, 
the the closeness that comes from people experiencing that together is, is pretty special. Yeah, thank thank you. And I, I do I find it interesting. I agree with you. Uh, for me, it feels like almost this this dichotomy that a lot of our life is like spent either in some performative nature of who we think we should be, mm. but then also a little bit on autopilot where we're not really reflecting and thinking. And I do, I do like the different ways that you've talked about awe and wonder of like peeling these things away and maybe for just, it, it might even be just fleeting, but the sense of, of, of connection that like all these other troubles kind of go away and, that that spirit of almost joy is, is something that that I, I find amazing when I when I watch tricks uh, and 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 sorry I, I'm hesitating because I was a big fan of Arrested Development so talking to a magician I, the, the kind of the job yeah <laughs> <laughs> but is it is it okay to say trick is that yeah of course because okay. because I mean I, I mean I think just the conversation we're having sort of reveals that the tricks are irrelevant right they're just once once you get to that place that you're trying to get, they become meaningless. They were never anything other than a vehicle to get there. And the the point is not to look at the magic trick. The point is to use the magic trick as a way to get to this place where you can you can share that with someone. Right. Yeah. Uh, years ago, my daughter was having a uh, uh, sleepover, you know, slumber party with some of her friends, and so we tried to do a version of Penn and Teller's Three of Clubs. Uh, you know, so a couple times forced the card so that her, her friends would get it, but then she would, you know, as an act, not have the card. Right. And, and then (laughs) we had, we had a three of clubs taped up on the mirror where the kids would brush their teeth before they went to bed. So that was, uh, she got a big kick out of that. Like she, she was young she wasn't quite sure where the reveal would be, but I I just love the long form reveal. So that was one where she kind of enamored a couple of her friends when they walked in and turned on the light and saw three of clubs. So that's one trick I've, I've tried, but I, I will, you know, just our conversation, I'm kind of inspired to do a couple more tricks. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, our family went to the Magic Parlor, Dennis Watkins. Um, sure, in Chicago. Yeah, and so I, part of the prestige of, you know, you're at the Palmer House and you go into this room and uh, we, we had a great time. And uh, But one, there was the, the version of a trick because I want to talk about how you're in Here's Real Magic, a version of the lottery trick, uh, which just blew my mind. And... Uh, I loved your story about gaining control of kind of a rowdy audience by yeah. by doing that. And could you dig into it? Not again, not to get into uh, the recipe of the trick itself, but again, that that kind of all of a sudden a uh, hostile audience became either <laughs> either fearful or completely enamored with what's coming next. So let me let me answer this in a, in a roundabout way. Um, not every magician I hope I'm not ruining anything here. Yeah. Not every magician invents their own magic. Um, most people draw on a common body of either classic magic or, you know, there are modern magicians like me who invent magic. And then sometimes people want to perform that as well. I, I have, since I was a teenager, invented my own magic. And, and as a result, I'm sort of a jerk when it comes to audiences not paying attention because I, I feel like it's my job as to performer as a performer to, to make sure 
there's this, there's this constant tension, I think, as an artist between the urge to share your work with the world and protect your work from the world. And when you are in front of an audience who has not demonstrated that they are ready to appreciate this thing you've spent six years of your life building, my inclination is to fight them and to just sort of um, dominate them. <laughs> you know, it's not the way, it's not this way with every audience. And this is not how I like performing, but I would rather them think that I am a, a uh, I would rather them think poorly of me and highly of the material than the other way around. And so you're, you're referring to a story that I tell in my book where I'm performing. So I toured for years on the college circuit and, and some nights you're in a beautiful theater and the audience is amazing. And like this night I was in an on-campus bar and the audience was drunk and angry. And um, yeah. So at that point I was very much in the frame of protecting my work from the world. Yeah. Thanks. I might need to have you come over to some of my family gatherings because those, those tend to devolve into drunk and angry. And But I will tell you that my favorite shows you know, it, it's funny. I think singer-songwriters probably run into this too. Like when you're starting out, people aren't coming to see you. They're just coming to the bar and you happen to be performing there. But you do reach this tipping point where people are not coming to the bar. They're buying a ticket to your show. Right. And, and the difference is palpable. When an audience is there because they intend to have a meaningful experience with your work, you can go so much farther. You know, you can you can you can go deeper. You can go farther. It, it, it's just it's better for everyone. Um, but yeah, certainly in my early days, I I didn't have the the privilege of being in that position. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> sometimes you just have to fight. Yeah. It. Uh, one of the one of the themes from uh, the Iowa idea that I like to dig into is is craft and kind of approach. And so. Mm -hmm. A couple different things for you, I, I think, because I think they're different, but uh, that's just an assumption I'm making. But also the different approaching your craft on creating a creating a trick, yeah, like you said, and then also stage performance, right? Sure. So, the, but do you mind digging into those a little bit? Just I'm kind of curious on how you approach your your work and your your craft, either creating a new show or even just creating a new trick. Yeah, so they're very different. Um, let me just start with inventing magic. It's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. You know, I haven't been able to perform this year and I, I probably won't go on tour again until we're looking at spring of 20. Is this right? Spring of 2022. Yeah, because I, well, for, for reasons. So I'm using this time to just invent a bunch of crazy, crazy material and, and, the the process looks like this step one you imagine that you're in the audience and you just you, you dream up something crazy that you would see that would make you believe in magic and so you know i the first like i have i have an a notebook filled with impossible things that i would like to see a magician do and once you have that that vision really really clear you know you can't you can't it, it can't be a general concept you have to really see it because the second step is to make it real to make it happen and and if the vision isn't clear enough when you when you start trying to solve it you'll you'll give yourself um shortcuts for instance um 
it's much easier to do something on a dark stage than a bright stage. You can just imagine that you can hide things in the shadows that you can't ha hide if, if you know, the lights are all the way on. It's much easier to do something on a stage than it is to do something surrounded by people. And so it, the, when, when you are generating the, the impossible ideal, you have to be really clear about what the parameters are so that when you then start trying to solve this, this impossible problem, um, you, you have to follow your own rules. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it is the most difficult part of my job. It's not any easy, there, there are no tricks to it. Like it's just writing an impossible event on the wall and then banging your head into that wall for weeks or months or but often years, like the lottery trick you mentioned took six years to invent. And, and they were, I mean, they were rugged years, but, um, but the bet that you're making is that um, at the end of that time, you, you know, you'll have something that not only will be totally inexplicable to your audience, but also to other magicians. And so, um, yeah, I, I wish there was a sort of like a romantic way to talk about this. No, this is a lot of frustration and a lot of um, like, so, so when you start coming up with the method, so it's called the plot, you come up with the plot first, the plot yeah. is the story or the, the sort of um, the narrative as the audience will perceive it. And then when you start coming up with the method, the first step, and I'm not going to tell you more than the first step, but the first step <laughs> is to write a hundred bad ideas on the wall. Like, how could I do this? Here's, and, and, and I don't mean about a hundred, I mean, literally a hundred, um, having a number sort of forces your brain to come up with really terrible thoughts. Like just anything that could be remotely plausible, because what you'll discover after you put a hundred bad ideas on the whiteboard or in your notebook or wherever you're working is that of that hundred, there are maybe four that are not so stupid. And then you're not working from nothing. Then you don't have a blank page. Then you have four starting points from which you can test and iterate and, and combine. And, and, you know, then you can do research to see how other magicians have solved those problems. But um, yeah, so, so that's, I, that's my world right now. Um, and I have, you should see my workshop. I have, you know, a few pieces that are done that, that since March I have taken across yeah. the finish line. I, I hope I get to get back into the theaters to share them someday. There are some pieces that are half built uh, and so there are, you know, parts sort of duct taped together. You know, you make a mock-up first. Right, right. You know, it's different for every trick. But um, And then there are some that I still am trying to fill out my hundred ideas that I, I just, I do not know if I will get there. But that's the, for me, that's always been the hallmark of a good piece. Like, it, it, because if you can come up with a, a possible method, the audience will too. And so um, my favorite pieces are the ones that I have to fight the hardest for. I, I love it. And um, yeah, and and I honestly wasn't looking for a romantic nature. I uh, So just a, a few things, themes that I want to pull out is uh, you and I have a friend in common uh, in Cade. Yeah. And Cade and I, one of the things we really like to discuss is the work of design. So I do my my day job is basically design and innovation. And a few things that I heard you say, too, that are very similar is one of the first things we try to do when we're looking at a problem is go wide and do divergent thinking. And, you know, that all forms of ideas are welcome at that point, right? It's we're, and then, then after a certain point, we go convergent and okay, what might work, but it's this form of analysis and synthesis. And when it comes to, 
to design performance. You know, I also used to do work in improv. So I'm also okay. hearing, you know, what, what you're talking about too. And what I want to share with people is people that do work well have usually put a lot of work into doing it well, right? Sure. It's not like you just wake up and can pull off a performance. And, and so that's what I'm, one of the things trying to share in the podcast too, is, is different ways that people approach their work. And even, um, you know, what are some of their tricks and tips to, to get unstuck as well? So I really do appreciate you walking me through, through that. And also just as a designer, one of the things I'd love to hear was oh, from a human or user-centered design, you already, first thing you do is you put yourself in the mind of the audience. Yeah. Right. And, and getting outside of yourself to like, what would one like to see? Uh, but a handful of questions that might not be interesting to you, but uh how many cards do you go through? Like as you're, because some of your, when I, when I see you go through a deck of cards, like when you do a trick, whether it's an autograph or full, you can't really, I mean, maybe you have to replace a card or two, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious, son. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, but you know, most of my stage act doesn't use playing cards. I, I was thinking about cards the other day. It's, it's funny that, I mean, it's sort of an arbitrary object that magicians have latched onto in a very, you know, close, um, it, you know, it'd be like having a lot of domino tricks out there or, uh, you know, a lot of um, Rubik's Cube tricks. I don't know why magicians settled on cards. Um, so, you know, yes, I go through a lot of cards. We could probably have a very long and uninteresting conversation about the history of why magicians use playing cards. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, it's just those, those I, I sometimes when I think about craftspeople, I also think about their tools and, and use and how many they have to go through. But I would uh, say like those aren't the tools. I feel like this is you. a mistake that so many magicians make too. Like the props are not your tools. They come in at the very end. A magic trick works on ideas and the proper ordering of ideas. And, and if you don't get it right at the idea stage, it falls apart when you try to map it onto like physical objects yeah. later on. And so, um, yeah, you know, I think, I think magic sort of has a, um, magic has a complicated set of associations in the public mind, but one of them is like the person who does card trick after card trick after card trick and just yeah. does not notice that no one gives a shit. And, um, I've, I've tried really hard not to be that guy for sure. How, and, I, I love that that insight. Where did you come to that? That it is, it's more, but it isn't the trick. It's the idea is what's important, and then it's how you convey it and map it to something physical. Yeah, I think when you start inventing your own magic, it becomes really obvious because that's just like that's literally the only way I know how to invent magic. And so I came to it just out of necessity. But everybody's different, and everyone approaches their work in a different way. So I'm not, I'm not trying to like shoot down any magicians who happen to yeah. listen to this podcast. I'm just, right. that's how it works for me. Are you, uh, this is another thing that when I talk to craftspeople, I'm always interested if they're able to enjoy seeing their craft elsewhere. Like, are you, are you able to see a magician do something? Are you able to enjoy it? Or are you deconstructing <laughs> what they're doing? Uh, do, do you find yourself at all with a sense of awe or wonder with another trick? You know, it's, I think my opinion on this has changed just, over the course of my growth as a magician, as a person, right now I really don't watch very much magic at all. And, and the reason is that I, my problem is not one of vision. 
I know exactly what I'm trying to hit. It's always been one of execution. So the last thing I need is either like the, the disappointment of discovering that someone had dreamt up a better dream than me, <laughs> you know, or the frustration at seeing someone take this thing that I love and, and massacre it. And so yeah. like, it's, it's so hard to be great at something, right? It's, it's hard enough to be good at something, but to make right. the, the jump all the way takes everything that you have. And I just, I'm, I'm pretty focused on this thing that I'm trying to share with an audience. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for taking in the world of magic as a whole. It's one of the reasons I love living in Iowa City. Um, there are no other magicians here. No one wants to talk shop with me. I can just keep my head down and do my work, you know? So that that's something you you enjoy is having that time and intense focus. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like this yeah. is Monday morning, which is my favorite day of the week. I love, I love it. I, I love, um, yeah. I I don't know. I I've known from a very young age that this is what this is for me, and I am for it. I feel like once you know that, you sort of have a responsibility to chase it with everything you've got. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, but that's, that, that again. That's how it is for me. That's what feels right, right for me. And I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, just as, from a get from a magic f- kind of fan perspective too. Uh, so just was interested because the the show fool us from Penn and Teller. Yeah. Uh, just one of the things I loved about the show was the dialogue between Penn and Teller and and the magician. If sure the way they were able to use, like I, I found it, it was kind of mo- most often it seemed, we think you did this and it was a little of that, right? And so there was, oh, to me, it was like, I don't have the exact conversation, but it seems like these people are sharing an idea and they know, right? And But then periodically when I would see somebody uh, play kind of uh, maybe hard to get, so to speak, with with sure. Penn t- then then I love because then it was like for them gloves were off okay here's what we saw here's what we saw but I when it wasn't that I really found for me it was this like serenity I'd find when people talking about craft uh yeah. without without giving away the secret so so that that trick could be done but I there was something for me that was magical about just humans having a conversation about craft that still protected the craft uh and then I, I like I said, I, I, Penn and Teller have always been entertaining for me, but there was something about Fool Us, which was more the conversation and, and maybe from a design perspective, the collaboration on deconstructing something that I always found almost heartwarming. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it reveals how much work goes into these pieces. Right. Uh, question for you too, because I love, so you, you kind of found your journey uh, and as ham-fistedly as I tra- transition here, kind of your destiny, so to speak. But uh, something we share in common a little bit too was, uh, I know you had more classes with, with Jay Holstein, but uh, my favorite class as an undergrad at the University of Iowa was Quest for Human Destiny. Yeah. And uh, just recently you hosted his golden lecture, but do you mind digging in a little bit about kind of... Um, maybe the inspiration yeah, <laughs> through the vehicle that is Dr. Holstein. Yeah. He he's um, he's been a huge part of my life when I was a student. Um, you know, I started as a theater major. I came here on an acting scholarship because I thought studying stagecraft would help 
I knew going in, I was going to be a magician. So my mission here was to just pull out whatever knowledge I could that would make me a better magician on the other side. I was walking to class one day and a friend grabbed me by the jacket and said, Nate, I don't know where you're going. Skip whatever it is. You've got to come see this guy and, and drag me in to see Professor Holstein lecture. And I'll, I'll never forget it. It was, it was, um, it was one of the best performances of any kind in any medium I have ever seen. It, you know, it doesn't happen. It, it's not an accident that he is able to, to, um, to cross the huge gap between a religion professor and a group of jaded, tired, 19 year old undergraduates, right? That is a very, deliberate um, set of skills that he's acquired to, to um, I think, you know, honestly, it's like what we were talking about earlier, share your work with the world and protect your work from the world. Um, you, you have to get them ready to, to hear what they're going to hear. And I learned so much about being a performer from, from Professor Holstein. And I ended up taking all of his classes and I, you know, I got a religion minor because I, I wanted to be, I, I wanted to learn as much as I could um, from him, not so much about the course material, but, but just about how to carry yourself in a way that honors the material and honors the, the audience and, and the act of sharing the material with the audience. And, you know, I think, I don't know how many of his students have gone on to become biblical scholars or academics, but I think a lot of us have, have, um, found in his work a, a sort of calling or, or challenge to to bring to our own disciplines and our own our own fields the same tenacity and rigor and and empathy I think that that he has so clearly brought to his for 50 years and I, yeah I don't know I I was honored that I got to be the host of that event and I'm just glad that he let us do it yeah that's great I know uh so my introduction to Holstein was uh my freshman year, I think it was even before classes started, he was giving a, uh, he was doing a showing of Blade Runner. And so then a little bit of lecture and, and discussion. And prior to even stepping on campus, Blade Runner was probably my favorite movie. Yeah. And I remember just being blown away by this conversation. And then it took about two years of waitlisting to get into Quest. Uh, yeah. So so now I'm a junior. And I remember we got the syllabus and we're looking at uh, all of the texts that we're going to deal with. Right? And it was, it, it's still like, if I went back, it's hardcore there, there's not light text in there, right. That you're really digging into. Right. But Blade Runner was not to be found on there. And <laughs> as uh, after lecture, I, I follow him out of McBride and uh, I was kind of like, what gives? Uh, <laughs> this is part of this is part of the hook. And uh, to this, he just he looked at me and he said, director's cut. Director's cut's coming out. I don't know what the text really means right now. <laughs> and so <laughs> so I just loved his integrity that, you know, because now like he thought he really understood that and he spent a lot of time with it. But now that a director's cut is coming out, what yeah. could it be? What's it going to mean? And so he just we got to push it aside. And I don't know if it returned or not, but I, I just love that moment with him. And uh, it was like, you know, kind of a wink and a chuckle, but also his, just this intensity and integrity that, yeah, I don't know what this text is really saying. And it would, 
it would be malpractices if I tried to tell a bunch of undergrads about it. Yeah, I love it when people can say, I don't know, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was one of the themes that came back uh, in the Golden Lecture that I really appreciated. And it's it ties into what I, from maturity is vulnerability and saying, I don't know. But one of the things I took away from Holstein was it wasn't about finding certainty. It was like more, how do we confront uncertainty? Right, right. It, and, and handle yeah. yourself in the face of constant uncertainty. Yeah. Right, right. And what I, but, and what I love, and so I don't, I would love to get your thoughts. To me, this is also like a, almost like a Zen-like duality is on one hand, life's uncertain, but we don't give up, right? It's like, there's this quest to find meaning, but it's not necessarily certainty. But I, I do find it interesting that it's like, how do you get comfortable with uncertainty and yet still trudge forward to find, find meaning in a quest for better answers? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I th this could go in a number of different ways, but I think maybe the shortest version is once you realize that you will never know all of the information or even enough information, right, that any cosmology you hold on to is necessarily flawed from the very beginning, then the only, then the only real um, firm ground you can stand upon is how you treat the people around you and how we treat each other, right? Like that is the choice that you can make without having enough information. And, um, you know, it's one thing to say that it's another thing to do it. But, um, but I think for me, that's the jump from the realization that learn as much as you want, what you're really going to do is learn how much that you still have to learn. Um, do you, do you then keep digging and digging and digging? Well, you can do that. You know, it's fun to learn new things, but I yeah. think the, the, for, at least for me, um, the, the, the bigger jump has been, okay, so it's not about gathering data that, that you know, uh, there, there are other ways to spend your time too. Thank you. Yeah, I know uh, one of my uncles who's a retired uh, professor, but he, he kind of ran through the, in short, his, his version of degrees or when you get your bachelor's, you think you know everything. When you get your master's, you realize you know nothing. And then when you get your PhD, you realize nobody knows anything. And yeah. it's like just, again, becoming comfortable with that. But I love, I love your idea of more about being present with the people around you and be, just being a good person. It's complicated though, too, isn't it? Because like you can be helpful to the people around you by gathering a lot of data and learning a lot of information and then right. inventing some medicine that saves everybody, yeah. right? you know? So right. uh, I, I'm, again, I'm not trying to be prescript prescriptive. I'm just trying to follow the logic. Yeah, and I, I on the on the design side of things, a lot of times I talk, humans, we're great abstraction machines. That's what our mind that we love to abstract things and, and mm. use models and, I think one of my favorite quotes those from comes from an old statistician George Box. Uh, all models are wrong, some are useful. Right? Because oh, yeah. anytime you look That's at a great. model, it's like what's its level of fidelity, what's right or wrong, and everybody wants to say why their model's better. Right. Some are useful. They're all wrong. And so that that's one I that like stuck that. with me yeah. on the design that's side. Great. Uh so one of the other things I wanted to uh this is uh a lighter question, but uh, because I've some of the the videos on YouTube, I've seen uh, Scam School or Scam Nation, where okay. you've, you've you've done tricks in front of people, and I love to like you said, it's it's bright, it's right in front of people, uh, and just kind of curious on, uh, have you been able to win a free beer here and there at bars as an um, undergrad? No. <laughs> 
No, I, I definitely don't. I, you know, I think there's some magicians who perform all the time socially yeah. and I, I never have, um, you know, I just, again, I feel like I'm going for something really specific, uh, when I'm, when I'm on stage and that's the reason I'm willing to get on stage. But when I'm not working, I, I certainly don't want to be the center of anyone's attention. So I, I, I am never going to be the guy doing magic at the bar. So this might be too simplistic of a question, but uh, in your day-to-day life, are you an introvert? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everyone um, has had to readjust their life to lockdown. It, it's not been that tough of a t- like, <laughs> now I read, I run, I work. My life is pretty simple right now, Matt. And and now now you have you have an out that's completely socially acceptable, right? You don't you don't have to go out and hang out. No, I gotta I gotta stay in. You know, with the pandemic, I gotta. I'm just gonna stay home and read. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. What's on your What's on your reading shelf right now? What What books are keeping you interested? Uh, You know, it's funny. um, We were talking about Holstein earlier when they started talking about the the 50th anniversary event. I started going through some of his the books from his reading list. Um, Hemingway and Salinger yeah. and that stuff, but um, yeah, so that's that's where I'm at right now. But I jump around a lot. I um, yeah, I I don't know. That's a that's a long long answer. We could do a whole podcast yeah. about books sometime. How about uh, you? What are you reading? Uh, well, uh, some one was just on creativity. Uh, Jeff Tweedy uh, last week or the week before released. Oh, how uh, is that? I've got it I, bookmarked. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I I love it. Uh, and I mean, I'm already predisposed to liking Tweety, but his memoir I thought was spectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his, you know, just his approach and what he's trying to do to get people to write one song, right? Yeah. But he And then he breaks down his method. So just from me, you know, kind of a nerd at craftspeople's process. How do they approach it? How do they look at it? And I just loved he... He had kind of his tips and tricks for when he gets stuck or uh, unstuck, um, and yeah, I, I it it's a really easy read. It's great, and it's already one of those books that I mean, I actually have a note in my planner today to go back to just review his step, not to read, just to remember what were those key steps again. Wow, I'm glad to hear that. The, yeah, the blurb about it looked very compelling. So. Yeah, it's uh, so that's great. And then uh, yeah, another another book that I'm reading right now is just called it's uh, called Hyper Learning, and it's mm. just how to continuously Wait, that, learn and adapt. Is that Scott Young's book? No, it is. No, that's Ultra Learning. Yeah, this one is uh, Hyper Learning: How to Adapt to the Speed of Change by Edward Hess. Okay. And what's the for me? What's the interesting thing about Hess is he comes from more of a business school perspective, uh, but the, the big, big things he's trying to convince people where I feel like not that long ago, business was about certainty. It was about being right. And it was about almost being a bully <laughs> with your ideas. Okay. And this is about how do you learn? How do you get comfortable with uncertainty? And also, how do you just work at getting better? And so I just, again, kind of these tensions of be open to that you don't know, but how are you going to get better? Yeah. So those, I'm just looking because I'm I'm right by my my bookshelf, and my wife and I joke because it's uh, 
I usually refer to what's on my uh, nightstand as my, my shame pile because it's, <laughs> it's books that I want to get to, but I haven't got to. But those those are the ones. And then then I'm always usually reading some uh, some design or innovation related books. Sure. So uh, and one of the last ones I read on that front was uh, um, how to outsmart your instincts. And it's about cognitive bias and how that gets in the way of being truly innovative, right? So, oh wow, like negativity bias—that negative is has a stronger pull than good. So we we look to criticize more than build. Um, and in in teams, you know, another one is uh, that the the notion to be accepted, <laughs> so saying yes to things. And and I'm a big fan of improv, so I believe is yes and in collaboration, but. Uh, not having a dissenting voice when you, when there's something wrong, why, why won't you say that? And so it's, um, Adam Hansen is one of the authors there. And, uh, I just love his style with, uh, innovation speaking and writing. So those are, that's kind of what's on my shelf right now. That's a, that's a good shelf. That's, yeah. but I too, I was, I, um, I'm, I need to do a little bit more research or if you have it electronically. Yeah. I was actually going to go back cause I was trying to recall, the books from quest yeah. like off the off the top like <laughs> of course epic of gilgamesh right and, sure. uh, but then hemingway was that was uh, old man in the sea right it was yep was heart of darkness did we have to read heart of darkness in there we didn't do that in my course i think it changed you know from okay. year to year but i'll i'll uh, i'll send it to you if you're interested right on yeah because i was thinking about even even just refreshing and like you said uh yeah uh Holden Caulfield and right, you know, Catcher in the Rye. And, and I love that that even got a shout out in the Alan, lecture. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That was great. So uh, another another thing that I wanted to uh, just ask you on, on the book front, by chance, have you uh, have you read The Magician and the Card Sharp? Uh, that's about the, um, that's about Di Vernon's search from the guy who could do center deals, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I have. It's been about a decade, I think. But right, yeah, because yeah, I think it came out like in '06 or something. But yeah. uh, actually, another person in Iowa City recommended it to me. I don't. Uh, Ed Nairing. No kidding. Okay, I was sure I had the only copy in town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ed, uh, Ed and Ed's been on the podcast, but he was a he's a musician and uh, Los. I don't know if you remember a band called Los Marauders, uh, okay. and then uh, a band called Hot. Uh, those were two of two of his bands through and here here's a guy that he is so dedicated to his craft too it's like that's uh in some ways i i'm jealous of his certainty but he and i when we get together and talk it's all about like it could go from uh discussions about buddhism to western philosophy to yeah. hey here's a cool story about a guy that could deal from the center of the deck and, and somebody's <laughs> quest to go find him. <laughs> Which to me is is I kind of Iowa City in a nutshell. That's a yeah, it's a good town for sure. So we've talked about your practice a, a little bit uh, and and your workshop and and things changing in pandemic, but in general, do you as you're working on things? And I don't want to presuppose this, but do you ever feel stuck? And if so, like what are some of your tricks for getting unstuck? You know, I I certainly have in the past. I think um, I have a couple of just. I mean, there's, there's a few different versions of being stuck. You can get stuck on a, a piece you're working on. You can get stuck in your career. You can get stuck in, you know, the type of show that you're doing. And I, I, um, I have 
spent a lot of time in all of those versions of being stuck. Um, when, you know, right now I'm in, in the world of inventing magic and, and my process for getting unstuck there is, is pretty straightforward. Like there, there are a couple of different fixes, but I, I'm aware that I am, um, you know, I'm part of a very long tradition and, and that magicians have been creating magic for certainly, you know, well, thousands of years, but, but in the way that we do it now, hundreds of years. Um, and, and, you know, you can always learn from the people who, you know, one of the great things about magicians is that in an, in an effort to um, claim their territory, everybody publishes everything. And so you, you can study magical inventions from the 1800s, from the 1700s, you know, just go back a couple hundred years and, and there's an extensive body of literature about different techniques and, and you can track the development of techniques um, through, you know, through the decades and centuries. And, and so, so if I'm stuck on a particular piece, one of the first things I'll do is just go back to the books and see if I can find someone solving a similar problem it might not, it might not um, get me all the way to, to where I'm trying to go, but, but it, it might just, you know, turn it a little bit or, or give me a little, um, a little insight in a place that I, did, I needed some. Um, it's not, a, again, it's not a cool answer. Like the real answer is to just work harder, I think, <laughs> but, uh, but that's how it works for me. Yeah. A couple, a couple things that have stood out for me. One, um, one guest I had, Alex Deason, a singer-songwriter who got his MFA here. Uh, but he, one of the things he said he learned from the workshop was um, don't go to bed with work finished. That was his, t from a writing perspective. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's a Hemingway idea too, right? Is Leave it, something it, in the I, bottom of the well so you can... Yeah. Uh, so when you wake up the next day, you, yeah. you almost have some momentum or something to work on. Uh, yeah. So I, I thought that was great. Um, can I give you one other strategy that I just, yeah. I, I forgot. I, one of my favorite music producers is a guy named Brian Eno and he has this deck of cards called oblique strategies yeah. uh, that, that, um, you, you sort of shuffle the cards and then you pull one at random when you're stuck and it'll say something like make it smaller, like some generic phrase, but you apply to your own individual circumstance or, play it backwards and so i've stolen his deck of cards and it's different for magic so i've had to change some yeah. of the but but um i'm having a lot of fun with it now where if i get to a point especially when i'm still coming up with the impossible thing that i want to share it doesn't help as much methodologically but just in terms of coming up with a plot um you know cutting a deck and looking at it and like one of my cards is make it stranger and that's a fun <laughs> problem to solve when when you're yeah trying to come up with something so so yeah so i don't i don't know how um i don't know if eno's cards work in other disciplines other than music production but i've had a lot of fun changing them for my own use and, and i assume other people could do that as well no i and thank thanks for bringing that up. i love it because I'll, I'll tell you it it uh it applies so well to design and innovation mm, sure because yeah and and i love it as an i just here's something to try right and it, it's ways to just almost I don't know. For me, it's like almost just like kind of shake, shake yourself out of like this fogginess when you're stuck. It just looking at it from a new perspective. So I love, I love, you know, like you said, even like make it smaller. Right? And 
like for design, then it would be how might we simplify this? Or if we if we zoom in, you know, what do we really want to focus on? And 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 all of a sudden it just opens up a bunch of new new things. So yeah, yeah it's it is phenomenal. And actually, uh, I remember it was it was an educator that I was talking to a couple of years ago that she said she's using it uh, for for inspiration in her classroom, like you know to keep things moving. She uses Eno's deck to oh that's great to change yeah. up her classroom interaction. Yeah, it's a good, you know, we've talked about certainty a couple of times in this conversation. It's a great way to confront your own certainties. Like if I've decided that a piece is going to happen on stage, like another one of my cards is um, take it outside, right? Like like what what if this wasn't a stage piece? What if this is a publicity stunt? And yeah. it just, it sort of forces you to reconsider some of the assumptions that you've made along the way. Thanks. One of the one of the last things uh, I want to cover is the notion of advice. It's a theme that I cover with guests, and it can take many forms. But uh, for me, I, I'm stealing from Austin Kleon's book, "Steal Like an Artist," where he says, "When we give advice, we're talking to our younger self." And and so I'm curious: Has there been advice from a mentor that has stuck with you, or is there advice you you wish you would have had earlier in your career, or both? I'm going to give you two. All right. When I was um, when I was starting out, there was a magician. I, I went to see him perform. I think I was 20. I was still a student at the university, in fact. Um, and I went to see him perform at the IMU. And afterwards, um, I said, you know, my name's Nate. I'm a magician. I'd like to do this for a living. And having now been the recipient of that request, so many times on tour, like it takes a lot after a show to say yes to that. And, and to his credit, he did. And we went to the Java house and sat for two hours and he told me about the business of being an artist, like not even a magician, but, but here's how you make a living as a professional artist. And his advice was a career isn't something that you get ready for. It's something that you build and, and don't think that you are going to get where you want to go only by sitting in front of the mirror and practicing your technique with a deck of cards for 15 hours a day. You still have to do that, but that is necessary, but insufficient, right? Like you still have to then find a way to put it into the world. Yeah. And that was really important for me to hear because as sort of a private, you know, a private person, my inclination is not to do that. I, I, I love it when I get to just put on my headphones and rock out, you know, to, a, to a, an album or an audiobook in front of the mirror with cards for a while. But, um, but you know, so you have, to, you have to be ready. You have to get ready. But when you're, when you're there, you can't just wait. You have to go out and, and be proactive about making your own opportunities. The, the advice that I would give to my younger self is, is different, although I'd share that as well. I think, I think people overstate and, and maybe talk themselves into believing that, that um, having a career in the arts is impossible. Like it's, it's monstrously difficult, right? It is a fight every day. And, and even the people who you think have made it, like even some of the professional magicians I know who are much more successful than I do, when you look at what their days look like, they're just working like, you know, like the, the only people who make it are people who are working as hard as they possibly can and giving all of themselves what they, they have to give. Um, but I would say 
even despite all of that, to my younger self, like age 11, Nate, it would have been useful to have someone say, you can do it. Like, you're not wrong about this. If, if, you, if you are willing to, to make it happen, you can make it happen. The real question is, do, do you want it? And, and I, I'm, aware that, I'm aware that that comes saying that, um, it, you know, I'm enormously lucky to be in a position where I can put so much effort and time. And so I don't mean to diminish the, the barriers that other artists are facing, um, but I just, uh, I, I have not, I haven't met someone who, um, uh, I don't know. Like, I think the opportunity looks different for everybody, but I think it's there if, if you're willing to, to look for it. That's great. Thank you. Nate, yeah, there, I, I wish we had more time. There was so much to all these different tangents, which I think could almost be another, another episode. But I really do like that, uh, the advice you received about a career, mm. and that it's not something you get, you get ready for. And, and, I mean, you have to make you, you make it work, because it's one of the things that I think a lot of people are struggling with today is it feels like I did this transaction. And I, I, I'm owed this thing, right? I went, I went to undergrad, so I should get a job, right? Where, okay. and, and almost in a Holstein-esque way from what, part of the beauty of the universe, it doesn't care, right? Yeah. But, and yet, how do you, how do you still persist and, and go forward? But that's where I see organizations get in trouble too, is, hey, we did all these things. We feel like we're owed this. And it's like, no, you, you're, you're doing this in a constant, kind of stage of, of preparation rather than you do this, then you, you deserve yeah. that. Can, can I add something to the, the yeah. answer I just gave? I think, absolutely. I think um, it's disingenuous to not acknowledge luck. Like you have to get lucky, right. In order to, yeah. at some point you have to get lucky. Um, I, I think maybe the way to make that more likely is to just not give up, right? Like you can, as long as you haven't given up, there's still an opportunity that, that finally the break that you need will come. And there've been so many, I think it's confusing because when people look at a career from the outside, they only see the stuff that's worked. Um, what you don't see is like, I have so many, I mean, the next conversation should be all of the stuff that I've just fucked up or times where I, I needed to get lucky right. and didn't or got lucky and almost had an opportunity and it didn't work out. Um, you know, and the ratio is not even close. It's like 90 failures, <laughs> 99 failures to every one success. Right. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that's, I that's great. And I've talked when I talk to athletes, I talk to performers, you know, even when it comes to like movie or video production, right? the amount of time that goes in to make like a 30 second spot look seamless. The, yeah. the amount of time that an athlete will spend when they're not on camera, when it's not <laughs> the game. Right. And, and as you're saying, like all of the things that you're doing to learn, it just, to me is, is actually one of the things I want to share with folks is that yes, there is, there's luck and there are people that have gifts, but there's also a lot of hard work, grit and persistence, or, you know, as the Finns call it a, a notion of Sisu that just goes into persisting and getting work done. So yeah, I, I, I love you yeah. sharing this in different ways. I really, and I really appreciate you have uh, you taking the time to join me on the podcast. It's been an absolute honor to have you here. I'm, I'm so glad we got to do it. Thanks for making this.